Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. We started last week with verse 1 and verse 2. We pick up now with verse 3 to the end of this chapter. We'll spend more time on this chapter next week, the last few verses, but we'll take in one swoop this uh, passage on God's climactic creation, this incredible explanation of all things in how it points towards the creation of man and woman in the image of God, this beautiful climax of this creative act of God to bring all things into existence. One of the things you want to do anytime you study the Bible is to ask a couple questions of the book you're reading. Uh, what is the occasion for its writing, at least the first occasion, and who are the first audience members, who are the first recipients of this message, of this book? Now, of course, it's a transcendent message. It's a timeless message. But starting at the place where it was first written and to whom it was written helps you understand some of the challenges of the text um, because of the time in which we live compared to when it was written. And what we have here is the account uh, penned by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably about the time the Israelites were in the wilderness after they had been rescued out of Egypt. Before that, Israel had spent 400 years as slaves to Egypt, and they had just been miraculously delivered out. They'd been told they were God's people, but there was nothing about their existence that made them sense that was true. Some 400 years in, as slaves. In fact, during that time, they would have heard over and over uh, all these various myths and legends of the Egyptian religions and the surrounding civilizations and how they had contributed to a mythology of how all things began and really what the place of things was. The Enuma Elish and the Gilgamesh epic are creation accounts that come from that time frame, just to name a few. And they told the story, the legend, the myth of many gods. And when you read it, you could see it's a myth, it's a legend, the way these are described. They told tales of the sun god and the stars being part of the sun's minions. Uh, the heavenly bodies were actually deities, people who had become de deities or deities in themselves. There was a multiplicity of gods with a small g vying against each other. The whole universe was in constant chaos against itself. And if one god rose up and could conquer some of the chaos, that god would be the primary god. And this happened over the years and it's described in these various legends and myths that the people of Israel would have been aware of, at least they'd be clear about some of it based on their experience in Egypt. Indeed, the pyramids themselves were somehow memorials to this kind of religion, this kind of worldview. No order, no purpose. Gods fighting each other for control constantly. Heavenly bodies as deities. Deities controlled the growth of crops and plants and things that allow people to live all up to the gods. That's what these teachings taught. People were pawns pawns and the chaotic struggle between the deities. And of course, as slaves, the Israelites felt as low as you could feel about their existence. Pharaoh, like a god himself or someone trying to become a god. This is a bit of the backdrop, the occasion, the audience. So God spoke through the prophet Moses in these days to set the record of heaven and earth straight. God spoke through Moses to describe the true order of all things under his soul dominion. God spoke through Moses to describe himself, 
to describe mankind and the purpose that he had for creation. And he gives the truth of what happens to creation, how they found themselves in the sinful state they were in. In Genesis, even these first chapters we're studying sets the picture for God's plan to redeem through one he would raise up to crush the head of the serpent. It even gives the beginnings of the gospel, the proto-gospel in Genesis. It tells us so much. God spoke through Moses to give Israel in that time a correct identity of their place and purpose in the world. God spoke through Moses in order to prepare Israel to be his representatives on earth. God spoke through Moses to explain man's plight and his plan for a Savior. And these messages that he gives to Israel, so much there, extends to us and helps us understand and see the world as God would have us rightly see it. So here as I read God's holy word, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from dar- the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God, God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, you have saved us through Jesus Christ. And so we pour out our praise and our thanks to you. But even if you had not saved any of us, you are worthy of praise for being the sovereign creator of all things. John in Revelation wrote, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Please guide us in this study of your holy word. By your Holy Spirit we pray, amen. God empowered the prophet Moses to deliver a message that sets things straight in the time it was written, and even now down through the ages. Moses is writing to tell the true order of things. Moses is writing to give the Israelites, at least at first, their true identity in the world. It was in order to rally them for the call that he was going to place upon them, the purpose he had for them, ultimately in bringing redemption through the Messiah who would come from them. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 before us, it sets the stage it sets the stage for the whole of the book. In Genesis, God means to be known as the creator of all things. Mankind is uniquely created in his image. And in so being created in God's image and likeness, mankind is meant to have a special place over the rest of creation. There is a poetic beauty that is hard to describe. You can sense it when you read the English text. It's difficult to overstate the beauty of Genesis 1, especially the buildup that happens. There is 
a wide view of the formless earth at the beginning, but still under God's careful care. And then as it moves through each day, it ascends to this apex of the top of the, the pyramid, you might say, where we find the image of God in man in verse 26 to verse 31. Verse 27 is poetic itself. The vast majority of the book, we would call it prose or exalted prose narrative. But verse 27 is like a poem. Maybe it was a poem that had been recited by the Israelites. And here it is now, inscripturated, verse 27. This is the account of God's climactic creation, Genesis chapter 1. So first, let's walk through God's process of creation as he describes it starting in verse 3, primarily down to verse 25. The order he follows, if you will. Second, we'll pause briefly to appreciate the culmination of this creation on the sixth day. We'll spend exclusive time on that, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. We'll attempt to address some of the interpretive challenges that are presented. And then we'll close with some essential takeaways. What do we gather together now from chapter one as we move into chapter two? What are those essential takeaways from what God reveals in Genesis chapter one? Let's begin by looking at the process of creation that he describes. James Boyce rightly observed with regard to these verses, 3 through 25. These verses teach that creation was according to the orderly unfolding of the mind and purposes of God. That is, it was a step-by-step progression marked by a sequence of six significant days. We started last week with the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is a bit of a transition between verse 2 and verse 3 where we really dig in this week. A bit of a gap, you might say. People argue about how long this was between this formless earth where the Spirit of God is hovering over, and then when day 1 starts in verse 3 very explicitly. The language doesn't reveal the actual length of time between verse 2 and verse 3. We only know that God started by creating the heavens and the earth, and it was inhabitable, it was uninhabited, and formless. But it was not chaos. God was hovering over it like a bird hovers over her nest and those eggs that are in it. Then Moses lays out in very clear, purposeful, orderly form the the opposite of something that's chaotic, something that's completely under the control of the only sovereign God. Not multiple gods, the sovereign God, Elohim, the word used for the plural of his majesty. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. This shows the creative power of God's word from the get-go. He can speak these things. He doesn't describe the process and what it looked like as he spoke and it happened. He doesn't give us that info. What we clearly see is the power of the word of God, the creative power of the word of God. Let there be light, there was light. God saw that light was good, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. We'll start to see refrains. He calls things good, pure, right, as he intended. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Here's the other refrain that captures each of the creative days. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
So the first act of God is to take the earth from a formless state, as described in verse 2, and to call light into being. He's now providing form. He made day and night. He hasn't indicated how this was done, just that it was done. He is bringing form and order by way of day and night, light and darkness. It's noteworthy that the sun and the other celestial bodies have not yet been made, yet he brings light. Notice how the day is quantified. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, there's a couple reasons for why Moses may have used this phraseology that's somewhat foreign to us. We say that a day starts at midnight and it goes to the following midnight. Generally, that's how we think of it. We're not inhibited by light and darkness so much in modern times because we have artificial light that can can fool us as to when it's night and when it's day. So we go by uh, the 24-hour period as the earth goes around on its axis. The Jews of Moses' day identified a new day in terms of their work, when they could accomplish things. And so when the morning started, a new day started, and you did your tasks, then evening would come. But the day's not over till morning rises again, and the next day starts. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. God does his work, there's evening, there's morning, that's day one, and so on. We see the refrain through six days. The seventh day lacks the refrain, but we'll get there eventually. Day two starts in verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Do you see what's happening here? In the first days, day one and day two and into day three, these are the days of forming. God is forming uh, the earth from its formlessness. Uh, He's giving light and dark, sea and sky, land and plants eventually here in a bit. But back to verse 7, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. He's preparing the earth now, and it was so. When he says it, and it was so, it's going to happen. There's no fickleness about our God. When he says it, it happens. His word has that power. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we see the formation of the waters. The deep existed. And now he divides them in some fashion. And it was good will also become a refrain we see coming forward from this as well. The quality of God's initial creation. The opening days picture God forming things, if you will. Day three begins in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. You can see things coming together now. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good, as designed, as planned. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Another refrain you'll notice again, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their kind, each according to its kind. It's kind, it's kind, it's kind. We can see a definite point being made by the author here. A point that he wants the audience to get. There's a form to this. There's order to this. There's provision for this. There's a plan for perpetuation. This is what the true God does. Not the false, fickle gods who hold back vegetation 
or decide when dark or light will come according to the legends and the myths. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. In days one through three, God has formed things ready now to inhabit them, to populate them. Almost ready for the animals is the earth. The one true God is creating, not many gods like the Egyptians taught. And the Israelites had to gather this to understand where their devotion must lie. It must lie with Yahweh. Not only is he, he the creator God, he is the covenant-keeping God who delivered them out of the hands of their enslavers. The fertility of the earth is provided for by, by God. We're dependent on the fertility of the earth from God's design. We're dependent on him, not the fickle deities of Egypt. Israel is taking a master class in the way things really are in the universe. Now the process of creation goes from forming the earth to filling the earth, starting in verse 14, day 4. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Now he's filling the heavens. Lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. Imagine yourself being the Israelites. What would you be familiar with? You'd, the great light during the day, the sun, and then the moon in the night. The two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Yet many had worshipped the sun and the moon. And here Moses is saying, God made those and they have purpose. God sent them, set them Verse 17, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. In day four, we have the stars, the sun, and the moon being made. You know, uh, to some level, the magnitude of that statement, how much is created here by the word of his power. Now, obviously, we would pause for a moment to notice something about the language. We have to be very careful here. It's not a technical description. I know we love the debates surrounding these things. A lot of them are pressed upon the church. But this is a description of the way things unfolded as God reveals it to Moses. It's not a technical taxonomy or cosmogony as such. We could trust what it says, but when it says the larger light or the two great lights, the greater to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night, we know these lights aren't the same kinds of things. Moons and stars are not the same. This is just known, this is the phenomena that they would know and see that God created these things that you are looking at. Not giving a technical footnote definition of what this all means and what this all is. We know that the moon reflects the light and that's what we're seeing. It's like other places in Scripture when it'll say the sun rises. We don't hold that to some statement of the actual way things occur, but rather what we see, the sun rises and falls. It's the phenomena we see. It's called phenomenological language. That's what we have in Genesis describing for us what God has done. We have a strong emphasis on the purpose of these heavenly bodies, though, given to us in the text for sure. Look at verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to do what? 
to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons. So they have purposes, these celestial bodies, for days and for years. So signs, seasons, days, years, much can be derived from what these celestial bodies do. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. These celestial bodies distinguish day and night. When the moon and the stars are visible, it's nighttime. When the sun is dominating and it's light, it's daytime. And there will be a fixed state about these. These won't always be fluctuating. God has designed for them to be fixed so you could plan a, a plan in line with them. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. Signs mean you can gain your bearings following these things. You can find your place on the earth by looking at the stars, by navigating in such a way, because they'll stay fixed. God has placed them there, and they have purpose. Something the nomadic Israelites would soon appreciate very swiftly. These would set growing seasons. Growing seasons were not determined by Egypt's fickle gods. They were determined by God's very purposeful design. Human sacrifices to get seasons to come, like in the cultures around Israel, were not necessary. They were sinful. God ordered the seasons by the way he established his creation. And these heavenly bodies would denote the passage of days and years. Day four, God fills, or day five, God fills the skies. It says in verse 20, God said, let excuse me, the seas. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. The birds multiply on the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. The days of forming, days one through three, now he's filling days four through six. Moses describing the oceans and the seas filled with creatures that God has made and given them the capacity to multiply unto their own kinds. Every creature in the sea and in the sky created by God. Day six, this is a busy one. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Again, not a technical taxonomy here. These terms that are used are from the ancients and understood as the way they might generally designate these groups of animals and creatures. Now, it's fair to say that the word kind might be like what we would think of as species, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, separate from the animals, separate from what he just done. Now he says, in the plural of majesty, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Distinct, separate. This is the culmination of it all. It's been getting better and better, bigger and bigger. And now, verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heaven of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All the stuff that God has made amazingly and fantastically, and now he's going to make something else to 
oversee all of it as his vice regent of sorts. Man and woman created in the image of God, totally distinct from all other creatures. This is the apex of Genesis chapter 1 before us. Look down at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God describing the filling of the earth with the creatures. And he brings to this apex the creation of mankind. It's important to notice how specific Moses is here about the creatures and their multiplying. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. This eliminates the notion of some kind of cross-species evolution or macro-evolution a common ancestor where everything came from it. No, God distinctly and carefully created each of these things. It doesn't mean to say there weren't variations and things that had happened along the way when the first dog was made, what God designed in the makeup of that dog to provide for the rest of them and so forth. That's not what we're talking about. Scripture doesn't eliminate that. It's just saying that there's not one ancestor that everything found its way from, one cell that just developed from it. The Scriptures makes clear God makes these different species, and then they have the capacity to multiply in their kind going forward. That's how he designs it. The Scripture lays this out for us in wonderful, clear terms. The buildup of the six days of creation comes to a majestic climax in this 26th verse. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Animals and people are not equal. People are overseeing the beautiful creation of God and should be careful caretakers thereof, but they're not equal. God makes it very clear as we read his revelation. Let's focus just for a moment because we'll spend more time on this next week, Lord willing. The climax of the creation comes down to verse 26 through 31. This is, you could say, the reason for the buildup in Genesis 1. You could say this is the most important feature that Moses, by the instruction of the Holy Spirit, is trying to inculcate to the people of Israel so they get the right bearing on who they are. They're not the slaves of 400 years who are at the whims of these false gods. They are the crown of God's creation. They have to rise from their slavish existence and self-view to realize that they've been in They've been made with purpose and with order, and it's good, in, and they were good in their original creation. Unlike people being under the oppressive thumb of various deities with no order, we have this picture of people created in the image of God. Unlike the picture of angry gods cursing rainfall and growth of crops, unlike the sending of darkness intermittently without rhyme or reason, unlike these pagan formulations, Moses gives a perfectly crafted explanation of the truth of all things, that God is in control of everything, he's created everything, he owns every aspect of creation, and he makes man and he makes woman to oversee it. No chaos in this view of the universe. Total dominion. Complete dominion. Absolute plan. God is the careful, providential God. Purpose, order, fixed seasons, all to God's praise. Verse 27, in beautiful, poetic form, so God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A thing of poetic beauty is Genesis 1. And the very thing that separates man from beast is the image of God in each of us. Yes, sin has definitely marred that image. But nevertheless, it still exists in all of you and all of us. Unlike the animals, men and women bear unique features related to our being in God's image. This is the climax of the first chapter to which we will return again, Lord willing, next week. Now, before we go from this point, I want to address uh, some of the challenges. There have been challenges over the years in interpreting Genesis, as you're probably well aware. Um, How might we understand these days of creation as they are laid out before us. Through the centuries, Christians who have held, and this is the key, this is where I'll focus, Christians who have held that the Scriptures are God's inspired and inerrant Word. Now, there are Christians over these centuries who have differed over the particulars of the interpretation of these six days of creation. Now, prior to the challenge of Darwinism or Darwinianism in its evolutionary postulations, um, in its purporting the earth to be millions and billions of years old. Uh, The predominant view before this really came on the scene in the early 19th century to mid-19th century, the predominant view among the Christian interpreters would be that the days of Genesis were to be seen as normal calendar days. Now, there are exceptions. Augustine did not take that view. Aquinas had a different view. Several of the medieval theologians thought they were more figurative in their usage. Uh, But for the most part, it is fair to say uh, that the interpreters would treat this as a regular calendar day. But as pressure on the Christian interpretation of the Bible as a whole came from uh, Darwinism, especially when the origin of species came out in 1859, all of a sudden, uh, many Christian interpreters um, were going back to see what the text said and trying, in some cases, trying to mesh with what was being said in science. That's always a dangerous thing. Science changes all the time. Never can figure itself out. But that happened. Now, in the process, some were just reacting to science. Others were just going back and doing, uh, you might say, more focused exegesis on the verses to try to figure out what it really did say and didn't say. That's an important thing. Prior to then, there wasn't really the pressure to do that. It's not that they didn't think it was 24-hour days. They just didn't have the same pressure to even answer that question. That's part of the reason, the practical reason, why all of a sudden, about the time the mid-19th century, you have several views that kind of emerge about how to handle the days of Genesis. Now, I'll mention four of them to you very briefly and then give you some resources to consider to further your study on this and explanation regarding it. In each of these views, the people who hold them also believe that the Bible is God's holy word, inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And they believe that Adam and Eve are historical people, the first historical people, God created everything out of nothing, and Adam and Eve are the real beginning of humanity. So there's no one who disagrees with this. I'm not spending time on people who don't think that. First, the calendar day view, which I just mentioned, the 24-hour day view, the traditional view. Uh, Most famously, Calvin, who we hold in high esteem in our tradition, he espouses this view. Again, he doesn't unpack it a lot, but he does clearly treat these days as normal days, 24-hour days. More recently, R.C. Sproul, who many people appreciate in our tradition as well, he advocates for the same, advocated for the same position. So that's the first view, the most popular view, I would say. 
The second view is called the day-age view. This is the view that came most readily in the mid-19th century by Christians who had a high view of Scripture, and they took the view that the days were not to be seen as normal 24 hours. They could have been 24 hours. They could have been a lot longer. It was more that God was just describing these, these epochs in time and the succession of how He created and there are lots of variations about in the, among people who hold that view. And many people, who you will know, have taken this position over the years, such as Charles Hodge, who was a Princeton theologian. And I mention him because he wrote ardently against evolution and against the liberal interpretations of Scripture. He would hardly be called someone who was weak on Scripture, yet he held this longer day view, if you will. B.B. Warfield, also a champion of biblical inerrancy, he held this view. But more recently, Francis Schaeffer, in his book on Genesis, takes this view. James Boyce, who I quote often, he takes this view, this day-age view. I mentioned Augustine Aquinas earlier. There's something else called the framework interpretation. This is a more difficult one to explain. The framework inter interpretation claims that the total picture of the creation week is figurative here laid out. The creation history is figuratively presented as an ordinary week in which the divine craftsman goes about his creative toil for six days and finally rests from it and is completed on the seventh, rests from his work on the seventh day after he's completed it. Advocates of this view say that to insist on taking this picture literally is to miss the profound theological point that the creation is not an end to itself but was created with the built-in eschatological end times goal of entering the eternal Sabbath rest of God himself in incorruptible glory. Some modern conservative theologians like Meredith Klein and John Walton and Bruce Waltke have taken this position. Finally, there is the analogical days view, the analogy days view. Um, this is saying that the creation days are days, God's work days, six days he works, and they're set up specifically this way so that the Israelites would gain a rhythm for their work and rest pattern according to God's pattern. And so it's more about the analogy between the work week and rest than it is about the specific length of the days. They could be 24 hours, they could be a lot longer. This view doesn't see this at all as the main point of this passage. These days are broadly consecutive, that is, they are taken as successive periods of unspecified length. Herman Bovink took this position. Poitras today and Collins also are advocates of this view. How should we interpret this? How should we decide? Unfortunately, time is out, so we're not going to have a chance to really discuss this further. How should we evaluate this? It, it should be noted that each of these positions are held by people who believe Scripture to be inspired and inerrant. And often when people who advocate the 24-hour day view is only the only view that can be, they say, if you don't hold this, you could end up becoming theologically liberal. I understand the reason. They might be worried they're letting science interpret Scripture. But none of these people I'm mentioning ever went liberal. In fact, they're champions of inspiration and inerrancy. So I think it's much to say that that would necessarily be the case. And there also, sometimes on the other side, people say those who hold the 24-hour day view, they almost make this a litmus test for everything about Christianity. They can't go forward with this and can't conceive that someone might not take that view but still be very conservative on all the other points. So there's lots of discussion that I've noticed happen. Our denomination had quite a debate about this some 20 years ago and produced a paper, and these are the four views that are allowable within our ordination, uh, our ordination trials. Here's the thing about the length of days that I would put to you. If Calvin and Sproul had one view, Augustine, Boyce, and Schaefer had another view, 
if Klein and Walke had yet another view, if Collins, Poitras, and Bovink have a different one, what are the chances that Tony Felice is going to answer this for you here today? Not high. Not high. Further, I think it's quite possible, since there's so much disagreement about the length of days across the spectrum of people who have had a high view of Scripture, that it's quite possible that it's not God's intention for us to know these exact specifics this side of glory. We should stay very humble on the length of days in the days of creation of Genesis. I'll talk about what we should be very ardent about as a closing point, but I want to encourage us along these lines. I like what Derek Kidner says as a caution. When the revealed and the observed seem hard to combine, when the revealed, meaning the Word of God, and the observed, or what people claim they observe, when they seem hard to combine, it is because we know too little, not because we know too much. Furthermore, James Boyce said, questions of how long the days were, while interesting and necessary, they obscure, these discussions can obscure the equally valid and more, more valuable point that creation, however long it took, was a deliberate and orderly unfolding of God's purposes. God is a God of order, not chaos. He is a God of purpose, not chance. It follows that we are called to be creatures of order and purpose, God's order and purpose. For those who want to dig in more, there's a paper done by our denomination that fleshes out all these views, and I'll provide a link in an email. Also, in two weeks on Sunday night, September the 5th, for my teaching time that I do in the Sunday evening gathering, I will do an overview, a more thorough overview of each of these positions and explain the strengths and the weaknesses of each of those. If you'd like to dig in more, come to that. What are the key takeaways from Genesis 1 so far now that we've come to the end of this chapter? What are the the essential takeaways from Genesis 1 at this point in our study? Several. Genesis 1 is history. It is the account of God's process of creating all things. We learn from Genesis 1 that God existed before matter. Materialism isn't true. God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. And he did it in the space of six days, his days. He created everything in an orderly fashion, with purpose. It's not chaotic. God, being the creator, has sovereign authority over all things as a result. Schaefer said, well, we have been made by God, and therefore we owe him our total and unfeigned obedience and devotion. Created things are not divine, nor are they gods. Adam and Eve were the first human beings. They did not evolve from earlier creatures. Mankind is created in God's image. This is the true and climactic point of Genesis 1. The image of God in man and woman. Man is the masterpiece of God's creation. That's the linguistic, thematic high point of Genesis 1. Mankind has a special divine purpose. God's vice regents over the earth. Mankind is valuable. People are valuable. People should be looked upon in this way. All people. The Genesis account is a majestic, finely wrought telling of what God did in time and space. It is our history. David wrote in Psalm 8, and I will close with this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are majestic. The earth you created As we scratch the surface of the depths of your word, give us a sense of awe and worship. And as I began in prayer, so I close. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. O Lord, to think that you have created us in your image. In your likeness, you have created us. We are almost unable to speak the kind of praise that you deserve. But nevertheless, we do our best by your Spirit's help to triumphantly raise a song of thanksgiving to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's turn in response to 125. We'll start